Welcome to The Brain Trust, a physician's guide to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, brought to you from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. I'm Dr. Kate Rowland, family physician, member of the IAFP, and faculty at Rush University. Funding for this podcast series was provided by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health. The goal of The Brain Trust and this podcast series is to educate and empower the primary care clinician in the early detection, diagnosis, and management of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Clinical resources, free CME, and other educational materials are available online at thebraintrustproject.com. CME credit is available for each podcast. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the Accreditation Council of Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information on how to receive credit can be found on the Brain Trust Project website. Thank you for joining us as we empower each other and provide training on the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And now, today's episode. Today, I think we have a really great episode for the Brain Trust, a physician's practical guide to Alzheimer's and related dementias. So again, just to remind you, I'm Dr. Raj Shah. I'm a professor of family and preventive medicine and the Rush Alzheimer's disease at Rush University and a co-host of the Brain Trust as a program put together by the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. And today, we're going to have a wonderful opportunity to really learn how things work in federally qualified health centers, especially for primary care and family physicians working in federally qualified health centers, and how they tackle the barriers, the needs for their patients that might be experiencing difficulties with cognition and need help with early diagnosis and detection. So hi, Emma. How are you? Thanks for allowing me to come today and visit with you and to spend some time with our podcast on The Brain Trust. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Raj, and welcome. It's so nice to have you here at Tapestry. Yeah, no, it's, it's my first time coming down to Tapestry, and I, I really enjoy the diversity of the neighborhood I was driving through on my way here. As somebody of Indian origin, I mean, I, I visited closer to Rogers Park because of Devon Avenue and all of the Indian and Southeast Asian cultures and, and uh, activities and restaurants and, and, and shopping places there. But I, I've never realized that Tapestry 360 Health was also an anchor institution in this neighborhood. But I was curious as we get started, Emma, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your journey about becoming a family physician geriatrician and working in a federally qualified health center. Yeah, thanks, Raj. Thanks for the question. You know, all of my postgraduate training pretty much was at an FQHC, uh, except for the one year I did my fellowship at the University of Chicago. But I was in the second class of residence at the Erie Erie Family Health uh, Northwestern University partnership of, you know, bringing the residency, you know, actually anchoring the residency in the FQHC rather than in the hospital. So that's been my you know, my intention all along has been to practice community-based medicine. And even at the University of Chicago, one of the things I liked about that that practice and that environment was that they had the same commitment, even coming from the hospital and their geriatrics clinic was in the South Shore neighborhood. We worked in a safety net nursing home in South Shore. So it was very much community-based as well. And I just think, you know, when we're talking about geriatric patients They are such an integral part of their community and transportation is often an issue. And so keeping geriatric care in the community was kind of my my goal in, you know, developing a practice at an FQHC. I've always been curious, like how we uh, what sort of happens in the space, some of the the patient populations and uh, especially with older adults that go to seek care. 
Uh, and maybe you can highlight a little bit about um, sort of the patients that you see that are older, uh, you might be at risk for dementia in your practice. Can you kind of give me a sense of who they are, or who you see from Rogers Park? Yeah. So I think federally qualified health centers in general, you'll see a huge diversity in the clinics if you go to different different clinics or different locations. I've rotated through ones in one in rural West Virginia as well as different ones in Chicago, and they all have a very different flavor because they are representing their community. Each one's a little bit unique in terms of what the needs of that community are. And one of the things I really like about tapestry and, you know, this clinic here that you're in in Devon is just the diversity of the population. I, I just really love not just the socioeconomic diversity, but the cultural diversity. We've got patients from all across the globe. I mean, we're on the language line with interpretation in languages from not every single continent, but definitely North, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, you know, those are all covered Sometimes we can't even get an interpreter on the line. I guess it could be frustrating if it's not not what you're used to, but but I just really enjoy working with such a diverse population. And the the flip side of that is we're also fairly close to Loyola, so I get the sort of diversity of of American population as well. We've got I get grad students, I get college students, I get the artist, waitress, musician people from Rogers Park. So I, I I have a lot of that as well. I have a patient whose original doctor was Dr. Quentin Young. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah, so we always, talk, and he's a big, that patient's a big activist in terms of community organizing and rights for different populations in Chicago. So we're always talking about what it was like to to be going to Dr. Quentin Young as your as your doctor. And maybe you want to just explain to our audience, because many may not know the history of uh, Dr. Quentin Young and his presence in uh, Chicago and advocacy for you know broader populations. But you just want to give a one or two like words about uh, Dr. Young? Yeah, he was Martin Luther King's personal physician, and he was just a big advocate for healthcare as a human right in Chicago. Yeah, so it's kind of, you're tying those histories together, which is really always a fascinating thing. And one thing I really loved about working with older adults where they can kind of bring the uh, tapestry of time along with space that you were talking about a little bit before. Um, So I'm kind of curious, like, what are the things you sometimes find as barriers at an FQHC to being able to do that early detection and diagnosis of people maybe at risk for developing a dementia? So, I mean, I think probably most people who are working in family medicine, whether you're in an FQHC or in a private practice or a hospital-based practice, you're thinking the time constraints, right? Because it really doesn't matter who you're seeing right now, there's a time constraint as kind of your number one constraint. And so when you're working with older adults, obviously they need a little bit more time. They're more complex, but they also move more slowly, talk more slowly. Often the visits just have a different cadence than, than they do with your younger patients, so that's a huge barrier to care in an FQHC. So can I um, can I just, because we've asked in other podcasts of this series, it, kind of encouraging or seeing like our family physicians, primary care physicians in the FQHC adding components of like the annual wellness visit as a way of, you know, talking about it when you don't have as much time to be able to talk a little bit more about cognition, function, mood. How's that been working in your experience in the FQHCs as a, as a way of maybe using that dynamic of the annual wellness visits to address some of the issues on cognition? Yeah. I mean, the annual wellness visit, their de- memory is one of the things that you're supposed to hit in a Medicare annual wellness visit. I think 
as a physician in FQHC, because of the way our payment structure is, that that each visit gets paid the same amount, kind of regardless of what you're oh, doing. Perfect. And that that's not true with Medicare. Medicare does, we do get slightly different reimbursements, but overall in general, it's about the same. Even doing the annual wellness visit, it's hard to fit it in when patient, because nobody comes in for their annual wellness visit. Sure. They come in for something else. And so you're even with that, I find that I'm off, often just trying to click off a couple of those things on the list that you're supposed to do in a regular visit. The other thing with memory, I think, is just the understanding within the community that it's a problem, right? Because my population is very international, so I don't know how true this is across the board, but but there's a lot of of folks coming in with their family members where it's not a problem until there's you know, a barrier that they hit that they're not able to overcome. So oftentimes that's the the citizenship civics exam that mm. they, they're oh. studying for and they can't can't retain the information for. And so all of a sudden they're realizing that there's a problem where their cultural concept of of dementia is more that it's a part of aging and that it's it's not a problem. It's just sort of what happens as you get older. Yeah, and I think that's like a really a nice insight, right? And in dealing with the community that you serve is that there's always a different reason for why cognition comes up in a discussion. And in your case, that sometimes it comes up when you need the cognitive function to pass something or to do something like the citizenship examinations. Um, so we can, you can sometimes use those, right, as a, an opportunity to, uh, it's a, a flag, like the other people are telling you there's an issue and now I've got to spend a little bit more time dealing with it. And so, so that, that's interesting that you will have different flags and different FQHCs depending on the population you serve and sort of the needs for older adults in those communities and how they engage with the rest of the world and need to use cognitive abilities to get through it. But I, I like that, that that was a, you know, a frame to maybe reference to people who are seeing in their FQHCs more of an immigrant community is, are they noticing difficulties with completing some of their citizenship exams or, you know, uh, and maybe that's a trigger or a way to ask it that it becomes something of meaning and not necessarily just something that, oh, I think it's just part of aging because that's how I've been brought up um, and my culture. That's where we, we kind of look at it. Yeah. So it would be an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic you just brought up that I wouldn't have thought about as, an, as a way of engaging with older adults about their cognition. Yeah, I think trying to think a little bit more broadly, I think in all FQHCs where we're taking care of a more underserved population, the caregivers are often working adults, often working jobs where they don't have any time off. So that's definitely a barrier to diagnosing things like like memory or dementia because they don't have time to bring their their older adults in or if they do it's got to be an evening appointment and if they if they do they, you know, they they really have to get in and get out. And oftentimes my older adults are coming in with grandkids who are mm. the ones who are, are a little bit more flexible to be able to bring them in. And then that social dynamic, especially from other cultures of sort of deference to your elders really kicks in that they really don't want to say about their grandparent that there might be something wrong, at least not in front of their grandparent. Yeah, that's a, because we do somewhat require that ancillary information to kind of make the diagnosis of early dementia, especially when some of our tools because of the diverse population, the need for translation, you know, may not work as well because they were never designed in those spaces. You need informants, right? Like other people to tell you about what's been going on to corroborate. And, and your point that if in a very working class community, you can't get people to spend the time, right? Uh, to take time off, they just can't. And, and how do you get that information 
to support your work as a clinician. So definitely time factors. It sounds like there's some factors around just the tools we have may not be perfect as far as being able to work with uh, diverse cultures and we have to get better at that. But because we don't have great tools around diversity, we have to depend on the story that's told by multiple parties. But that brings up sort of these uh, dynamics that make it a little bit difficult in, in some of the communities we serve. I was actually also curious about your the engagement with translational services, right? That you have to bring another person in the room with you sometimes or on the phone to have to help with, you know, accurate translation of your questions, maybe around cognition or cognitive function and that person, and then have that information translated back to you, say, in English by this translator. Um, and a good translator will always do that well, right, as a medical translator. But I think, you, you know, sometimes you can't find a translator and it becomes a little difficult. I, I think it's an interesting point because, so number one, I it, it is something that I always use a translator for, even if it's Spanish, which I'm not fluent in, but fairly functional in and and don't always do all my visits with a translator. But even in Spanish, I'll use a translator when we're talking about memory. And when it's in Spanish, I, I know whether or not they're translating well enough for what I'm trying to ask. But we get people who speak like Rohingya or mm-hmm. Yoruba or re- languages that I have no idea what they're saying. And I have no idea if they're translating it correctly. And you've probably experienced this in your practice too, that the types of information that we're trying to really drill down on when we're doing a memory evaluation isn't necessarily how the the patients or their caregivers have thought about it before, right? So you're kind of asking them to sort of evaluate in a new way what their loved one's behaviors are or what their cognitive function is. And so you really kind of do have to drill down and understand what they're saying and that, you know, when I have an interpreter who I, I, I don't know how well they're translating versus interpreting and, and sort of asking the question again, which they definitely will do. They definitely in some of those languages, because it's not like a word to word translation, there is yes. a cultural difference. Yeah. So they, they do do that. They do sort of translate or interpret more than just just translate what I'm saying. And, and you know, that's necessary. But then I, I always do kind of wonder how much is being lost through the process. Yeah. And um, so, so, yeah, we've identified some of these key barriers, right, in, your, in the practice and the context of working in an FQHC. Any thoughts about what you found to be somewhat effective in, in going through one of these cognitive evaluations or just based on your experience to date? What, what seems to work sometimes? We won't have perfect solutions, but are there some solutions, I guess? And so do you mean just in terms of like getting a memory evaluation? Yeah, yeah. Like how, how do you kind of do that initial work? You know, as a, somebody comes to you and says, hey, look, I'm, I'm having troubles like passing the citizenship exam. I'm trying. It yeah. just, I'm not absorbing this information. I, I'm worried, right? That I'm never going to pass this and I won't get my citizenship. How would you take it from there, like in your office practice to say, kind of figure out, is it depression? Is it, is it a, a learning disability? Is it something to really do that they're um, having troubles with a dementia process such as Alzheimer's disease that might be going on? I think in dementia, I was trained and, and oftentimes insurance kind of puts the pressure on us that you have to have an ob- objective measure of how well they're able to function. And even in training, you want to try to get that objective measure, whether it's a MOCA or an MMSE, some kind of a score that then you can track over time. Even if the number isn't as diagnostic, the idea that you can see, okay, this is what they are now and here's how it changes with time. But with my population, I really can't do that with a lot of them. And and 
We've tried using something called the RUDAS, R-U-D-A-S, which is designed for an international population to be done with a translator. But even with that, it gives you a number, but it doesn't really tell you anything about what that means in terms of their ability to function or what they were able to do 20 years ago versus what they're able to do now. So really, most of it is ends up being that history from the caregiver, the, the family, the folks who who know them best. And, you know, in my population where we have a pretty intact family structure for a lot of my patients, that's pretty, you know, I can usually do a pretty good job of drilling down and asking those questions. But having worked in other underserved areas where there's a lot more social isolation and seniors who are living alone or seniors who are the caregivers for the family, mm-hmm. even as they're mm-hmm. starting to decline, you know, in South Shore, we had a lot of grandparents who were the anchor in the family. And then the children's generation has sort of scattered or dispersed. And then they're taking care of grandkids. So there's sort of that generation missing there. And that was a lot harder to get the information. But then also thinking about function and those other things like depression playing a role in it, That's that becomes really difficult to tease out, especially because in dementia, you can get you know, which is the cause and which is the effect. You can get the depression as a, as a mm-hmm. result of the disease as well as, as cognitive changes as a result of the depression. So part of that is, you know, the advantage of being in an FQHC where hopefully, hopefully you have a little bit longer term yeah. relationships yeah. with your patients, but also relationships with the family members where you're yeah. seeing them or, or maybe your partner is seeing them and you can sort of put together a little bit about what's going on at home. Yeah. No, and I think that's like some of the keys that we forget about, right? Like we focus on some of the things that we can't do sometimes in our practice, like that was not like our training and our, or what other people have told us that we have to do. And instead of focusing on the things we have and the tools we do have, right, whether it be our brain, whether it be those connections with the community and the networks of the families, whether it be, you know, some of the other tools we can use of time. And I think that's the precious thing we have in some of the primary care offices is you can flag that there's an issue, right? And you can keep it there. And then you can work together over time to see what's happening. And if you think that the depression's there, you, of course you treat it, right? Like you treat it and then see how they do afterwards. So there's always this nice thing about the longitudinality of primary care that, especially if you're anchored in a community that can be built up. And that's the strength in FQHC is that we sometimes don't get at an academic center or church, especially a tertiary center that does evaluations. I get one time to see that, right? Uh, maybe in a year, and I have to make that decision. You know, there, there's some more of those balances in FQHCs around, I can see them again. I can follow this pattern. I can test something out and may not work out the way I thought, but then I can adjust again because I'm seeing them and gather a little bit more information over time. So, so I hope people do feel like, especially our, the people I value that practice family medicine and primary care in FQHC is that there are strengths you have, right? And it's just a matter of like, how do we use them to our best abilities? I think, you know, you're much better at using translators than I probably am, right? Because it's just, you have to do it a lot more um, in your day-to-day experiences and understand what the limitations are and the strengths of it. But, and I think we have to also convince maybe with places like our uh, medical societies that forcing, getting more help, like uh, neuropsychological testing or something like that, and having to prove that you've done a MOCA test, when in the end, the MOCA test wasn't designed to be given to this population. And you really just need to depend on the information you gather in your notes about what is happening with people with their function. 
is good enough, right? Like it, it is the better tool rather than necessarily uh, forcing us to have to check the box and say we have a MOCA exam where it might not mean anything for the population we're serving. So, you know, I, I've learned a lot just by us talking a little bit about, you know, some of the day-to-day activities and practices and challenges, but maybe the solutions are also embedded in there, which is we trust what we do and what we collect and how we organize it. Uh, and we advocate that that should be good enough to keep moving forward with helping our patients. Absolutely. But, yeah. I, th- I definitely feel like the relationships we develop in FQHCs and, and the ability that we have to bring people back is so important to being able to help diagnose, but also treat dementias. And, you know, the same things that are barriers, like the, I know we're talking about prevention today, but the same things that are barriers for diagnosis, like the different cultural perceptions of the disease and what it means are also advantages for treating it or taking care of it. Because I find that my, my families that have that social structure and that family structure in place, it becomes, I don't want to say irrelevant, but not as important whether or not we get the diagnosis or, or the, that they get the diagnosis, that they understand the diagnosis because they're coping and they're taking care of their loved ones. And they're, they, you know, they'll come back to us when they need support. And, you know, we've got social workers that can help figure out the supports that they need within the community. But oftentimes they're, they're presenting later because those supports are already in place in the, in the community yeah. and the family already. Yeah. And that's part of our, you know, broader education, maybe using sort of a multi-sectoral approach about just how people can feel that they're connected. And, and you know, when connections happen already because of social structures, some of those feelings don't come into play as much. I've always found, right, like even in my own practice, that the things that drive people to is not just their cognitive loss. That's not the thing that people seek help for or talk to a physician about. It's usually when the cognitive loss is impacting something they want to do, right? Like they're getting frustrated by something or they can't do something. And that's what drives it. And, and we just have to kind of help to keep our eyes and ears open for those, you know, aha moments where we can then engage with people and interact and help to support them a little bit better and keep them safer. But it does bring me to something you mentioned. It comes back to the idea of the tapestry thing is that you know, the, the primary care practice at an FQHC with resources such as like social workers that can engage with the community, being run by a community organization that understands the community. How do we kind of work together with these multiple sectors to maybe engage? So it's not only just the healthcare and the social work uh, community or social services community, but maybe even some of the businesses that are in the area, especially around these issues you were talking about before, Emma, about I need some time, right, for my family members maybe working in some of these businesses in the community to have that 15 minutes or 30 minutes to come to an appointment and to be with their loved one that might be going through a cognitive evaluation. And and I think you had gone to just a broader meeting recently about how we can build like the engagement with businesses and other community members with the health and social services. And I'm just wondering if you know, those things are a strength maybe of the FQHC and its leadership to keep advancing these dementia-friendly community ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that our clinic's really very much rooted in the community, right? I mean, we're a community health center, but it's true in, in practice that most of my referrals are word of mouth from from folks within the community talking to each other. And, you know, most people work within the community too, so so their employers are part of it. And I, I think that 
that's one thing that honestly I've seen with the COVID pandemic is the the importance that family plays in our lives came to the surface for everyone during the pandemic, right? Whether it was parents taking care of their children and, and their children having to be at school at home and that affecting their ability to work or people getting sick and family members having to take care of folks at home or stay home themselves when they were quarantining with COVID. It had a huge impact on how we interact in a work environment and in a community as a whole. And so I'm hopeful that there will be more changes in that aspect that will impact our geriatric care as well. But honestly, it's the whole community care. We all benefit when we're thinking about ourselves that way. Yeah. And I think that you know, I think we were talking even before as we were setting up, I'd coming up to see you about some, some of these, you know, how some businesses have engaged in the space. And I think we were sharing this example of a group that was involved in sort of the coffee retail business was sort of engaging with their employees, learning about dementia concepts and supporting them as an example of how business can help a little bit with the social services, help with the medical needs and keep people from feeling stigmatized in a community so I was kind of curious if you wanted to relay what you that story and what we were learning about or what we were talking about before we met today. Yeah, so I we're allowed to mention brand names, right? Yeah, yeah that's fine. <laughs> I think it, yeah. Starbucks. So I and it was actually a community in Japan. I can't remember the name of the town, but they were having a hard time with um, in Japan. There are a lot of older people and a lot of folks who have dementia, and they were coming in, and it was really you know for all of us who've been in a Starbucks line. It gets frustrating when that line gets slowed down and it slows down pretty easily if you're not ready with your order and you're ready to to pick up your drink and pay and and quickly. And so that was becoming kind of a problem when these folks were coming in with their caregivers, which was often happening sort of in the early afternoon when they needed a break and things were slowing down the assembly line at Starbucks. But they started working with that as an asset. Like, here's a potential customer base, right? And we're, as a coffee shop, that's what we are. We promote people coming here, spending some time. It's about connecting with other people. It's about enjoying your drink. So if we can engage and maintain these folks as customers, then that helps our business because we're here to sell coffee. So they trained all their employees in how to work with folks with dementia, how to give them a little bit more time and, and talk to them in a way that was not demeaning and not rushed. And as a result, the community was much happier and Starbucks was much happier with their with their way their business was going. Yeah, kind of an interesting, you know, a little antidote about what we could do, right, uh, with FQHCs as anchors in a community with the employees of the patient population in the community to really support this idea of dementia-friendly communities. And we'd love to see like dementia-friendly Rogers Park at some point in Illinois, right? But I guess, you know, we've had a great conversation. I know you've got a busy schedule also building up in your clinic today. So I I really appreciate you taking this time to talk with us uh, and be part of our podcast. But before we end, were there any other things you wanted to bring up that we might not have covered and discussed today? Yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed talking to you today, Raj. It's it's a nice change for me to get to talk to someone with your background coming from a, you know, the the tertiary care center, the the specialty care center down at Rush, and I really miss that from my my residency and my training. And I guess is there are there any good ways for for me or for other doctors who are maybe feeling like this was a good intro to get more involved in geriatric care and some, you know, more education or support resources? Within yeah. IAFP? Oh, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, we, we, I, I think we're going to have some of those resources available on the website for the, the Brain Trust and where the podcast will be hosted. 
But a really nice thing that's happened uh, as one of the uh, a few chapters in, in the entire nation, the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians has created a member interest group around geriatrics. And um, that gives us an opportunity to keep these conversations going and sharing experiences from different avenues and, and how we engage. So I'd, I'd really encourage you to look at, you know, joining us as being part of that geriatric member interest group and engaging and, and learning and growing together. I know people will be really interested in understanding how that happens of primary care, working with older adults and FQHCs and the perspective you bring. And, and that's the fun of just being able to talk with each other again as physicians doing different things over time. Great. So, I, I love that the member interest groups they're always changing. It reflects yeah. the interests of our of our membership. So that's great to know that there's a geriatrics one. I'll definitely get involved. Great. Well, that brings us to the end for today and for our conversation with Dr. Emma Daisy at Tapestry 360 Health. Really enjoyed our time in Rogers Park. And we look forward to you joining us for future parts of these podcasts. And if you know anybody in your community and the work you're doing in uh, primary care to advance early detection of dementia, please be in touch with us and we'd love to talk with you. So thank you again for being part of the show today, Emma. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Raj. It's been great. Thank you to our expert faculty and to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future topics, please contact us at podcast at thebraintrust.com. For more episodes of The Brain Trust, please visit our website, thebraintrustproject.com. You'll find transcripts, speaker disclosures, instructions to claim CME credit, and other Alzheimer's resources as well. Subscribe to this podcast series on Healthcare Now Radio, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you tune into the next episode of The Brain Trust.